Again, that's Hebrews 10, 19 through 39 on page 1007. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners to those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your poverty, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Josh Govier, uh, one of the pastors and elders here. And this morning I get the privilege of preaching. Uh, so I'm super excited about that. This morning we are continuing our series uh, in Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And the reason we title that is because, well, one, he is. Jesus is better than anything. Uh, and then two is that that's one of the biggest themes in Hebrews. So this morning we will be looking at Jesus being our better Confidence, Or so my sermon in a sentence would be that through Jesus, we have a secure relationship or a confident relationship with God. So we will first, we'll look at our confidence and our security. So we'll look at why we have confidence, why we have security. And then we'll look at what does that look like? So what does a confident relationship with Christ look like? 
Then we will look at a warning. So the author here in Hebrews gives a strong warning, uh, really for those that have no confidence in Christ. So we'll look at the opposite. Um, We'll also look at it in the sense of a a confident Christian, someone who is secure in their relationship with Christ, will heed this warning. So Christians will heed and listen to the warnings that are given them. And then finally, we will look at perseverance. Um, So the, the truest mark of a Christian who is secure in their relationship with God is a life of perseverance, um, a life that continues trusting and holding fast to uh, their relationship with God, to Christ. So first, let's, let's jump in and we'll look at our confidence. Why we have confidence, uh, and then what does a secure life or a confident life look like? So the passage starts with a therefore. So those of you that have done Bible study in the past or or studied anything, you you know that whenever you see this word therefore, you go back and you see what it's there for. Um, You go back and you relook at what we've been talking about. So um, what we've been talking about, the author uh, or previous sermons have largely been surrounding Jesus as our high priest and how Jesus is our better high priest than Um, Any of the Levitical high priests, he comes from the order of Melchizedek. He's a a lasting high priest that his sacrifice is able to um, be once and for all. So because of that, because Jesus is our best high priest, our better high priest, he says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a brand new living way that he opened For us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over our house, and then he goes into let's do things. But so first, um, I want to look a little bit about that. The author here reminds us on purpose. He just got done talking about how great Jesus is and why he's this better high priest. And then yet again, he reminds us of our confidence and of our security. Um, He's essentially saying, through Jesus, you have access to the presence of God. So the language here is meant to to draw you back to um, the temple. So when he says that we have access to the holy place, he's he's referring to the holy of holies. So before Jesus, only one man really had had access to the presence of God and only one once a year. So only one man, once a year, could go into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, where God chose to to dwell. He said, this is where my presence will be here on earth. One man had access to that once a year, and only after he offered sacrifice for himself, because he was sinful. Um, So there was a curtain that divided it, that here it says that Jesus tore down. Um, There was a curtain that divided, essentially saying, um, human beings and God are not able to dwell together. There's separation between human beings and there's separation between uh, humans and God. This is because of sin. This is because God does not allow sin or sinful people in his presence. Um, So as I was thinking about this, um, this is really something that we we all have a basic understanding of. Um, so we all understand sin to an extent, or at least we understand bad things to an extent. We, we know that we are not what we should be. 
Um, really, that's ever since Adam and Eve, right, people have not been what they should be. There has been separation between God and people. And so I was trying to think um, a little bit about that, and, and I don't know why this came to mind, but it, it did. So in middle school and high school, um, I had, let's call it a potty mouth. Um, so I used curse words. Um, it was just a part of my everyday language, a part of my everyday vocabulary. Um, so I, I, weirdly, there was so negative peer pressure. In sixth grade, I remember it very clearly, um, there was a girl that made fun of me for being a goody-goody, and she was like, I bet you won't even cuss. And so I did to prove her wrong, because I was an idiot. Um, and really, since then, like, it just stuck, and I just started using this, this language. Um, it, it became just part of who I was. So those of you that have grown up here, or I grew up here, um, and so I was with a lot of you guys, you may not have known that about me. Some of you did, so I can see my mom smiling because I hid it from her, but she, she knew because she's a mom. Um, but the point is, is that I, I knew that that language was not acceptable in certain circles with certain people. Certain people wouldn't tolerate that type of language, and rightfully so, because it was, it was wrong. So I knew that here at church, I wasn't going to use that language, and I wasn't going to use that language around my church friends, and I wasn't going to use that language around my parents, or in, in my mind, especially my grandparents, because they don't tolerate that type of language in their presence. Or you could say it, they don't tolerate that sin in their presence. So they don't allow it to be with them. So what I did was I just covered it up and I just masked it. And um, talking to my mom later, apparently not that well. So um, parents always know you better than you think, teens. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. So um, I knew that if I wanted to be around certain people, I had to act in a certain way. Um, or you can, you can look at it a little bit differently. So imagine... Uh, a parent that has a child that is addicted to drugs. So that parent, their love for their child doesn't stop, right? In, in fact, it changes, but um, they would say, we don't allow drugs in our house. We don't allow that sin in our presence. So if you're going to be here, you have to not be on drugs. Or even, even further, right? So let's take it to, to criminals, Right, so usually uh, in criminals, there's, there's even this level of acceptance and, and level of acceptance that is not okay, right? So in, in many places, um, those that are child molesters or rapists, even among criminals, are, are not allowed in the same circles, right? They are exiled because of their sin, because it's seen as, uh, and rightfully so, as something that is not okay, that's not acceptable, so here's all of these examples where we all understand that sin should not be in the presence of holiness. The problem is that we all have different understandings of what that sin is. We all have different ideas of what we accept in our presence or what we um, don't accept in our presence. But God doesn't. God is perfect. God is holy and will only allow perfection in his presence. He will not allow any sin or any sinful 
person to be in his presence. Therefore, there is a dividing curtain that keeps people from the presence of God. Therefore, sacrifice must be made so that this one man could enter into the presence of God once a year. So the author here, he says, we have something so much better. We are able to enter the presence of God. Um, Sorry, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. So God only allows for perfection. Um, So in the example of of me in my language, I was still able to be here at church. I still hung out with my parents. I still went to my grandparents because I modified my behavior. I changed my language, which didn't actually change my problem um, because my problem wasn't a language problem. It was a heart problem. Our problem is not a behavior problem, not only a behavior problem. We have a heart problem. So for us to enter into the presence of God, we can't just clean up our acts, right? We can't just say, all right, I won't use certain language and then I'm good to go. Or I won't do certain things and then I'm good to go. We need to be made new. Our core, our essence needs to be changed, needs to be transformed. So this is the gloriousness of of this passage. um, That we have confidence to enter because of the blood of Jesus. That gives us a new and living way um, to enter into the presence of God. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, talking about the Christian, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a total transformation, not a change in behavior, or not only a change in behavior, but a change in, in who we are. In fact, a few verses later, in verse 21, he says, For our sake... He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here, people are transformed from sinful people into the righteousness of God through the blood of Jesus that sanctifies us, that that transforms us. It is through that that we have confidence to enter into the presence of God. It is only through that that we have confidence to enter into the presence of God. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. The separation between God and people is torn apart. That now, through Jesus, we are able to enter into the presence of God. So Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is something that we're, we're all searching for. Really, acceptance and a relationship with God. The good news, where, where we start today, uh, which is cool that we start there today, the good news is that you can have a relationship with God. The God of the universe, the infinitely big God, you can have a relationship with. You can enter into the presence of that God because you can be changed. You can be transformed from something sinful to the righteousness of God himself. 
Only through Jesus you can be made new. So this is the good news. This is the basis of the rest of the sermon. Really, this is why we're here is because we have been transformed and we are here to proclaim the transforming grace of God to anyone who doesn't know that. So right after this, right after this is what the author reminds us of. Remember, you can have confidence to enter the presence of God through Jesus' sacrifice, through his blood. And then he says, because of all of that, let's do some things. Or to say it another way, um, because we have access to God, because we have confidence in our relationship with God, it will change how we live. So this is where it doesn't, it doesn't remain in this intellectual idea. It affects our behavior. The gospel, the transforming grace of God will always change us. It won't leave us where we are, but it will change how we live. So here he gives and he goes on and he goes to three. He says, let us three different times. And he, he says different things that we should do. So the first is in verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God with full assurance, with full confidence. Basically saying you have access to God, use it. Draw near to him. Why would you not if you have access to God? So spend time with God. Seek to deepen your relationship with him. So again, as I thought, um, I want you to imagine with me that you have a wealthy great uncle. And I don't know why it's a great uncle because most of us don't know our great uncles. Maybe that's why. But So imagine that you have a wealthy great uncle. And I mean like, like stupid rich. Like he's got so much money that his money makes money for him that functionally there is no end to his money. So in this great uncle, because he loves you, because you know your great uncle for some reason, um, says, you have access to my wealth. Through me, you have access to my wealth. You can use my money for the needs that you have. You better believe, right, when a need came up, you would say, hey, uncle, and you would use it, right? So you wouldn't wait to get your heater fixed. There would be no worry in your life, right? You would have a need, and if money was able to help with that need, you would use it, right? So you wouldn't, um, I, I am not that way, right? So one, I don't have unending. I am not stupidly rich, um, as you guys know. But um, if I had access to that, right, I... If I had a car that needed to be fixed, so I did. My car, my heat went out uh, this winter when it was super cold, and I drove around without heat for a while. Um, one, because I don't like getting things fixed. Two, I don't like spending money. Um, that would not happen, right? If I had access to money that just makes more money, that just makes more money, I would just say, hey, all right, let's get that fixed right away. Um, how silly would it be if we didn't? Right? If you had access to this unending amount of money, and you're driving around in a car with no heat in the middle of January when it was negative five, you wouldn't. It would be silly. 
The same thing is true, right? Except for what we have access to is far greater than money. What it, what it is able to meet our needs is, is much more than money can. We have access to the living God. Let's use it. Let's draw near to him. You have, in fact, blood-bought access to God. So here's where I want to, um, I want to talk about a couple of means of grace. What does it look like to draw near to God? How has God created the world to work so that you can know him, so that you can deepen your relationship with him? These will not be new, but I hope that they are encouraging. The first is simple, right? Read your Bible. So God has revealed himself to us through his word. Take advantage of it. Spend time reading your Bible. Now, you can read your Bible every day and you could, you could not meet God. Like, you could read your Bible because you think that's what a good Christian should do. So I want to be careful here. As I say, read your Bible, I'm not telling you to read your Bible because I think it's a good idea. I'm not telling you to read your Bible because that's what good Christians do. I want you to read your Bible because that's where God is found. That's where he has revealed himself to human beings like you and me. Let's take advantage of that. So every time you read scripture, ask yourself questions. So when you read, think, ask yourself, how does this help me love God more? How does this help me know God more? So last year, about a year ago, I think, in, in youth group, we went through a series of how to read the Bible and why it's worth it. And my hope is that if I ask any of the teens, why read your Bible, that they would be able to respond very quickly with, to know God. That's why. Right? Not because it, is, um, it will give you all the answers for all the problems that you face in life. It will, but that's not our reason. Right? Not because it will make you feel good when you're down. It will, but only because it presents to you Jesus. Our confidence in the word of God, our ability to draw near um, through scripture is because scripture shows us Jesus. Scripture shows us, shows us God. So here's where I don't want to sound, I don't want to be legalistic, but if you are not reading your Bible, if you're not consistently and regularly reading your Bible, you're not going to be growing. You're not drawing near to God. You're just not. Now, you could be reading your Bible consistently and still not drawing near to God. Um, but if you're not, then you won't be growing. This is action. This is because you have access to God. Because you have a confident relationship with God, draw near to him. Use what is given to you. So the next means of grace, the next um, way that we deepen our relationship with God that I want to talk about is prayer. So this one blows my mind. Why Christians don't pray. So when I, when I say that, I want to include myself in that. When I don't pray, uh, there's no logical reason for it. It doesn't make sense for a Christian to not pray. Yet prayer is hard. So right now in youth group, uh, we are, we're talking about prayer. 
And one of the first things that we talked about is that prayer is hard. We don't understand it. Um, we think we do it wrong. Maybe we do do it wrong. Um, but we don't pray. To here I want to just really put it simply. That prayer is a way that we draw near to God. Prayer is a way that we can grow and deepen our relationship to God. You are able to speak directly to God. Again, because of the access given, this is something that would have been unheard of before Jesus. To be able to ask the living God who created you, who sustains your breath, to be able to ask that God something, to talk to that God, this is unheard of. Yet we have access, and we can confidently do that. When we come in prayer, we don't, the, the Christian doesn't have to wonder, will God hear me? The answer is yes, because you have a great high priest. The answer is yes, because you have blood-bought access to God. For the Christian, you don't have to wonder, when I talk to God, will he do what is good for me? The answer is yes. He has shown himself to be good. He has shown himself to want to talk to you. So this would be um, another plug for those, those Friday night prayer meetings. This would be another plug for our uh, bi-monthly prayer meetings of Engage. Um, personally, I, I love them. And I want everybody to experience what I experience when I go to prayer meetings. Which is nothing short than the presence of God. It's not because I'm special or I'm such a great prayer. Um, in fact, so the, the, the joke in the office is we ask, are you a prayer person? Well, the answer is no. You're not. Not on your own. Um, only through the Holy Spirit do we become people that pray. Only through this blood-bought access to God. So let us draw near to God. Because we can. Because you can. I can't, I can't think of any reason not to. Yet, if I'm honest, I have lots of reasons not to. None of them are real, though. Um, we think, I don't, don't have time. You do. How could you not have time to talk to the God of the universe? How could I not have time to talk to the God of the universe? To hear him talk to me? Life's too busy. Life's too crazy. It's not. Not for the God of the universe. Let us draw near to God because we can. So then the author moves on and he says, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast to the hope of the gospel. So here's where I want to encourage you Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day, remind yourself of the hope that you have. So when you preach the gospel to yourself, several things happen. The first is that you feel bad. Because when you preach the gospel to yourself, you remind yourself that you are sinful. You remind yourself that it took the death of Jesus to save you. So this is a, one of the ways that we fight our sin. One of the ways that we take seriously our relationship with God is when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we, 
we start with our sin. But we don't stay there. There is danger in staying with your sin. There is danger in thinking more about your sin than about the grace of God. Because the gospel starts with sin, but then it moves to the good news that Jesus died for it. That it is totally paid for. That there is no more guilt, there is no more shame. And then it ends with the hope of a better life. It ends with the hope of being totally and completely restored. I was talking with, with someone the other day, and we were um, really just kind of thinking about that and talking about being restored and the hope that we have in the gospel and how it's unimaginable. This person said, can you, can you imagine having relationships that are untainted by sin? I said, no, I can't. Everything that we experience, even the good things that we experience, right, they're all colored by our sin. But we have a hope that we can hold on to, that there is a better life coming. That we will have relationships that are unstained by sin. We will know what it is to be naked and unashamed before our God. Hold fast to this hope. Don't waver from it. It's God that is faithful. It's God that holds on to this. He's the one that promises this hope. So here... Um, I want to encourage us to hold on to the faithful one. Don't hold on to things that don't last. Which we all grasp at. So don't hold on to your money. Don't hold on to your stuff. Don't hold on to anything that won't last. So the only thing that lasts is the gospel. The only thing that lasts is our relationship with Christ. So let us together, let us hold fast to that. And then finally, the last encouragement that he gives us, not the last point in the sermon, but the last <laughs> encouragement that he gives us here is, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let us stir up one another to love and good works. Those that are confident in their relationship with God will seek to stir one another up to love God and to love others. This is part of our confident relationship. This is what it looks like. So um, one kind of more technical note here. The word here for stir up or to spur is a strong word. In fact, usually when the word is used, it's used in the negative context. Um, so it's used, for example, when Paul and Barnabas get in a fight and they separate. So the, the conflict that arose that was stirred up between them is the same word here, to stir up. So we see here, this is not just like a nice suggestion. Okay, when you think about it, go ahead and encourage somebody. This is stir up, Right? Let us arouse one another 
to love and good deeds. Now, the, the first way, and this can only be done uh, by meeting together, by coming together as church, to church for mutual encouragement. So last week, as most of you know, I was supposed to preach this sermon last week, uh, but I got sick. And um, so when one of us is sick, and that's been happening more and more now that we have kids, um, so, but Beth and I have to figure out who's going to stay home. Um, so if one of us is sick, that's very easy. That one stays home. But when our kids are sick, we have to figure out who's going to stay home. Um, and it's really a who has to stay home. Because we love coming here. We love meeting together with you guys. We love singing praises to God with people singing with us. We love to pray together. We love to hear God's word preached and to be stirred up and, and pushed back to Christ. It's that weekly reminder, that weekly encouragement, coming together, worshiping with other believers. There is no substitute for it. When you miss out on corporate worship, you miss out on incredible encouragement. Now, and I know that there will be times, right, where you do have to miss. You're sick or you're out of town or different things like that. Um, but there's no substitute for being at church. But I, I want to be clear here that I think this is talking about more than just showing up to church. Showing up is important, and I don't want to minimize um, the encouragement that that gets and that gives. So just by you being here, just by you singing and praying and worshiping together, that gives encouragement to other people. And you are encouraged by it. But if that's it, if you just kind of passively come, I don't think that that fits within stirring up one another to love and good deeds. I think we are called to much more. I think we are called with um, in urgency. So here it says, the day is coming. There is an urgency to be encouraged, to stir up one another. And this seems to be calling for a more intentional kind of relationship. One that knows other believers. To stir someone up to love and good deeds, you've got to know them. Here's where I would encourage you through whatever means you can, through small groups or Bible studies, um, make relationships with believers, with other believers here at this church or at your church um, that go beyond small talk, that get into one another's lives that you can stir up and encourage. Right? Relationships that People know your sin. That's scary. But it's needed. Because we need to be encouraged. Because we need to be stirred up towards loving God and loving others. Be in relationships where people know what's going on in your life. I know that they can be hard. And it can be scary. But let us, together as a church, 
stir each other up. Let us arouse our love for God and our love for other people together. So one thing I want to note about all of, all of these let us things is that they're all active. None of them are passive. You don't passively hold on to things. You don't passively hold fast to things. Right? You don't um, passively draw near to things. You certainly don't passively stir up one another. So I bring this up because maybe you're like me. Um, left to myself, I kind of just let things happen. I let things happen to me. Um, I'm not the most go-getter out there. But here, we are called to actively pursue these things. So here's a quote um, from D.A. Carson. He says, People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Let us actively draw near to God. So if you have been kind of passively letting things happen to you, if you have been um, passively having your faith intersect with the rest of your life, this is a call to so much more. You have access to God. Draw near to him. Stir up one another to love and good works and hold fast to the hope that you have. Do this daily. Don't drift, but instead draw near. So now I want to look at our warning we have a pretty strong warning here in Hebrews 10. So I want to look at it, hopefully, from an encouraging way. Or, possible, well, yeah, I hopefully want to look at it in an encouraging way um, that encourages believers towards um, doing just this, confidence and holding fast. And I want to encourage unbelievers towards Jesus, towards the gospel. So the first thing I want to notice or I want to point out about this warning, is that it's given to Christians. The language here, it doesn't allow for us to say, oh, he just switched and now he's talking to non-believers. He's talking to Christians. But I think that's encouraging. I think that's a good thing for us because I think that the Christian that is confident in their relationship with God, the Christian that has full assurance with, with God, that has access to God and takes advantage of it, will heed these warnings. The Christian will listen to the warning, and they will turn around. So if you remember from some of the other times that we've talked about warnings, um, warning signs are given so that you turn around and go the other direction. 
Right? So Pastor Sergey would use the illustration of uh, a warning sign that says, hey, the bridge is out. Don't go this way. It's given so that you don't go that way. You turn around and you live. Right? It's not given so that like, you just kind of blow past it um, and die. Right? It's given so that you live. So I want us to look at that war- this warning um, in the same way. So here's the warning. The warning is, if you go on sinning deliberately, there is no hope. If after you have seen and experienced the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of God, and you choose your sin over God, there is no hope. The only confidence that you have is in Jesus. So if you are turning away from Jesus... You don't have hope. In fact, it says the only thing that you can expect is judgment. It's the wrath of God poured out on your sin. Now, I want to be um, clear here that, so this is not talking about somebody who is struggling with their sin. And when I say struggling, I mean they're fighting it. This is not talking about somebody who knows that their sin is there and they are actively turning away from temptation. They are actively repenting of their sin and fighting their sin. This is also not talking about somebody who is accidentally sinning. So someone who just doesn't know better, hasn't learned yet, hasn't been um, convicted. This is talking about somebody who purposefully, deliberately disregards God. You know what sin is, and you say, God, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. It goes on and it says um, that the passage says that they profane the blood of the covenant. Which means they treat the blood of Jesus as dirty, as unclean. They despise the blood of Jesus and they throw it away like you throw away a gross cloth or a tissue. If that's you, right, if you are um, loving your sin... If you are continuing in your sin, you don't have hope. Why? Why don't you have hope? You don't have hope because the only hope is in Jesus. So if you are turning away from Jesus, it makes sense that there's no hope. Right? So um, there's an illustration here uh, built in talking about the law of Moses. And he says, if someone was convicted by two or three witnesses, if someone was deliberately breaking the law of Moses, they are to be killed without mercy. So here here are passages that are hard. Right? I read something like this, and then I go back and I look at um, the law, and I I see that, that people are killed without mercy because of sin. And it's scary. So I want to I want to look um, closely and honestly about this, and then I want to talk about what do we do with the warning. So the the argument in the illustration is: if someone breaks the law of Moses and is um, killed without mercy, how much more 
is somebody who knows Jesus and disregards him. Something better than the law of Moses is here, right? The whole point of this sermon series, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the law. In fact, he's the fulfillment of the law. So something much greater, something much more important is here. And if you disregard it, if you count it as dirty, if you continue loving your sin, the punishment is far worse than somebody who breaks the law of Moses. The only confidence that person has is in a fire that will consume them. And the reason is, the author goes on and he says, because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here we see the contrast of the secure um, and confident life. God's holiness is something that is awesome and is something that is terrifying. So we started this by talking about we have access to the living God. We have access to God's presence, but that is only through the blood of Jesus. Without the blood of Jesus, God's presence is terrifying because he does not allow sin in his presence. Says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you are rejecting Jesus, God's presence is not a happy place for you. It's a terrifying place for you. So that's the warning. What do we do with it? What do you do with it? I don't want genuine believers to leave here struggling with their faith. In fact, I want the opposite. I want to encourage you in your faith. So what do we do with the warning? Well, we take it seriously. We repent. You turn away from your sin. You say, Jesus is better. There is no confidence, there is no hope outside of him, but in him, there is confidence, there is hope. So to say it bluntly, Stop sinning before you go to hell. So I say that, um, I know that that's blunt, I know that's hard, but it's also the words of Jesus. He says in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. So here is the call to fight your sin. To do whatever it takes. So instead of rejecting Jesus, draw near to him. Instead of holding on to your sin, hold on to the hope given in the gospel. Instead of hiding from others in shame and darkness, stir up one another to love and good deeds. The confident Christian, the one who is secure in their relationship, will heed the warning. We will repent. And then, the last point is we will persevere. The author here, it's, it's like he knows that you're going to be feeling bad after this warning. Um, 
So he reassures us. He reassures his readers. So in verse 32, he says, but... So after this strong warning, after just saying it is terrifying, it is fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when you were enlightened and you endured. You persevered. So he reminds them that they have persevered in the past and that they can continue to persevere. He says, hey, remember that hard thing that you went through? He says, yeah, by the grace of God, you rocked it. You persevered. You held fast to the hope that you had. Here, I think, is the truest sign of a confident and secure relationship. It's perseverance. So he reminds them that they have suffered for the sake of the gospel. And in fact, they have suffered some hard things. He says that they were publicly ridiculed. And that they, even when they weren't the ones um, being beaten or ridiculed, they identified themselves with those who were. as to put themselves in harm's way. They visited those in prison, even though it would put them at risk for prison. And then this one in verse 34, it, it, again, it, it blows me away. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So these are the things that can only be done by somebody who is confident in their relationship with God. These are only done by those who are secure. It's only done by someone who is holding on so tightly to Jesus that the other things in their lives just fade away. They don't hold the weight anymore. I think that this, this last one, this joyfully accepting the plundering of your goods, I think is especially hard for us, those of us um, that are Americans. Here's going to make a joke about those who are Americans, but Sergey's not here, so you can tell him. <laughs> um, we have bought hook, line, and sink the lie that our stuff matters. The lie that our stuff is ours, and that nobody better take it. I, I would call this, I had friends in, in college who were particularly, I would call it stuffy. That they would um, hold on to their stuff so importantly. It was so, so tight. You could, you could tell, right? So they would hesitantly let you use something of theirs. But only after they went through all of the rules for how you can use it, all of the rules for when you should get it back, um, all the rules for what happens if you don't return it back, um, they were stuffy. Well, the reality is I think that most of us are stuffy. We work hard for the things we have. And we work almost as hard to protect it. But here we're presented with a greater reality. These people here, they knew that what they had in Christ was so much better that their earthly stuff, it didn't matter to them as much. So I want you to imagine with me, now instead of having a, um, a rich uncle, you yourselves are rich. You have more money than you know what to do with, more money than you could ever spend, more money than you could even give your kids, right? So everything is set. And you're walking down the street and you've got $10 in your pocket. 
and you're robbed. You're mugged. Scary, right? Someone comes and says, give me your stuff. Scary. It's hard. Do you care about that $10? No. No, there's no way I'm putting my life at risk or the, the life of the thief at risk for $10 when I've got more than I could ever need. I'm happy to give up that $10 because the $10 doesn't matter to me, right? I have so much more. The reality is, is that what we have is better than money. The possessions that we have is better than stuff. We have an everlasting inheritance in heaven. We have access to the God of the universe that we will live eternally with. Now, if all I have is $10 and somebody tries to take it from me and that's how I'm going to try to feed my family, there's going to be a fight. Right? Because that $10 matters to me. If it's all I have, then I'm going to fight to keep it. If this world is all you have, you will fight to keep it. If your hope is in this world, if your hope is in your stuff, then you will fight to keep it. And you will fight to get more. And if that's all there is, then absolutely, right? If this world is all there is, then get what you can while you can. But it's not. There's something better. We have a better possession. We have a lasting possession. So don't hold on to your stuff. Hold on to Jesus. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to the hope of a better life. Now, this doesn't minimize the, the sin that was done to them, right? This doesn't minimize the hard thing of going through something like that, of having your stuff taken from you by force. That's hard, and it's still wrong, and that's still injustice. But the question for you and the question for me is, how do we respond to things like this? Do we hold tightly to Jesus? How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to trials? If you have something better, then you're able to persevere. So I can't help but thinking of Miss Terry here. So as we yesterday celebrated her life, a life well-lived, a life that persevered through trials, she was an example of that. She knew that she had something better coming. Now, that didn't make her life not hard, right? As, um, as we heard yesterday, she was honest about her suffering. She was honest about how hard it was. She didn't stay there. She knew she had something better coming. And, and now that she is experiencing fully, she has persevered. She has run the race, and now she has the lasting possession. Let us do the same. Let us hold fast to the gospel. Draw near to God while you can, which means 
while you breathe, right now, through the blood of Jesus, draw near to him. Through the blood of Jesus, hold fast to your confession and to your hope. Through the blood of Jesus, stir up one another to love and good deeds. Through the blood of Jesus, heed warnings and repent of your sin. And through the blood of Jesus, let's persevere till we can have our lasting possession. For the believer, we are not those that shrink back. But we are those who have faith. We preserve our souls. So as we move into communion, I want you to come confidently to the table. If you are a believer, come to the presence of God with confidence, with security. Here in communion, we put into practice much of what we've talked about today. When we come, we remember the blood of Jesus. We remember why we have access to God, why we can commune with him. As we come, we hold fast to that hope. Communion declares Jesus' second coming as well. So we hold fast and we look to our hope. We look to our better future. And as we come here, we come together for mutual encouragement. As we sing, we sing together for mutual encouragement. So if you are a believer, come confidently. If you are not a believer, if you are considering Jesus, if you have rejected Jesus, do not come. Don't come to the table. Instead, come to Jesus. Instead, repent of your sin. Turn away from the destruction that has promised you and turn to Jesus. You can have confidence. You can have a relationship, an unending relationship with the God of the universe through the blood of Jesus. Come to him. So as we come, we'll come forward um, like we normally do. You can take communion right up here um, or you can go back to your seat if you want a little more time to reflect. Uh, those of you in the balcony, you can come forward. There's a table set up for you. Uh, those of you that are unable to come forward, we still want you to be able to participate. So there will be an elder that will bring communion to you. Just raise your hands and, and let us know um, and we will be happy to bring that to you. Let me pray. God, I thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us access to your presence. That through your blood, we have confidence in our relationship with you. We don't have to wonder if you love us. We don't have to wonder if you hear us. We don't have to wonder if our relationship will last. We come before you thankful. Lord, we ask that you will, your spirit will give us the strength to live a confident life. Lord, I pray for each of us here that we will go home and draw near to you this week, that we will spend time with you. We will get to know you through your word. We will get to know you through prayer. 
Lord, and that you will change us. Lord, I pray that you will remind us of the hope that we have. The hope of a a life that is fully restored. A totally new creation. A life unstained by sin. Lord, I pray that you would give us relationships with one another that would allow us to stir up each other to love and good deeds. Lord, we come to you asking for you to give us endurance, to persevere. We come to your table this morning thankful for what you have done for us, thankful for what you continue to do for us. Thank you. Thankful for the life that we have in you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let us examine, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For who any, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us come together.